If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them with me to Mark chapter 6. The messenger, not the power. Last time we were together, we followed Jesus to the home of his youth, the city of Nazareth. There, he did what he does. He taught in the synagogue, and the people were astonished at his doctrine, recognizing his power and his authority, but rejecting him on the basis of familiarity. This is just Jesus, they said. He lived among them. He, uh, his mother and his father lived among them. His, his brothers and sisters lived among them. He is the carpenter. They, the Bible says, were offended at him. And because of that, the Bible says that he was able to do no mighty work there, save healing a few sick folk, and that he marveled at their unbelief. And that's what we talked about last week, the, the thing that Jesus cannot do, the thing that God cannot do, that he responds to faith, that Jesus was unable to do mighty works among those people because they were offended at him. They were unwilling to receive him. Now we pick up there today. Not long, not a long passage today, just a few verses, where we read, beginning in verse 7 of Mark chapter 6, And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. So Jesus calls the twelve unto him, and the Bible says that he begins to send them forth two by two. Now, we have no statement of displacement here. Uh, and Mark is not the most chronological gospel. That would be Luke. Uh, Mark, like with Matthew and with John, are thematically arranged gospels, not necessarily chr chronologically arranged gospels. Uh, we know, however, that there is a general chronology. We know that everything kind of starts at the beginning with Jesus's ministry and goes to the end of Jesus's ministry. Uh, no gospel has the cross in the middle, uh, right? Uh, the, the cross is at the end and uh, the beginning of Jesus's ministry or perhaps of his birth is at the beginning. Uh, we might presume things are in a general order of beginning to end, but the Gospel of Luke is the one that's written more uh, of a chronological history. The other Gospels were written thematically, intended to reflect uh, more of a focused purpose. Uh, Matthew, of course, to prove that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah and was a fulfillment of those prophecies of the Old Testament. Significantly more prophecy and prophetic fulfillment in Matthew than in the other Gospels. Uh, a great deal more uh, um, uh, Jewish orientation, Jewish vernacular, uh, talking more about uh, Jewish customs and the like, and that is Matthew. Mark, as we've talked about from the beginning of this series, is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, and it is particularly focused upon him as the authoritative Son of God, that he has all authority in heaven and in earth. And then, of course, John is to highlight belief and unbelief, light and darkness. Unto the end, the end of John says, these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And so John gives us his purpose in writing, and hence the reason why the Gospel of John is so different from the other Gospels. Uh, his purpose, uh, the purpose of John in writing it was was different. Uh, it was, was very focused. And everything that he talks about, about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, is about light and darkness, belief and unbelief. 
However, Mark has been faithful throughout the course of our pages here in the first six chapters of Mark uh, to tell us of transitions between locations. He doesn't necessarily give us time frames, whether or not uh, there were days, weeks, or months involved. Uh, we know that, um, that, that there were, well, we don't know that there were gaps between these things directly, but we would presume that there are in that we know from John that Jesus was going down to uh, Judea several times and, 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 the, and the like. And, and so we see a very condensed version of all of these things in the Gospel of Mark. However, we have no such indication here of any movement and to this end, we might imagine that these things are still happening in the region of Nazareth. It may be, it may not be, but perhaps it might even be because of where he is that he's doing this thing. Perhaps Jesus uh, thought, um, perhaps his thought in this was that uh, if the region would not accept him, well then perhaps they would at least accept his disciples. If the contempt that was brought upon him for his familiarity in the region was such that they would not receive him, would they at least receive those who were his own? Maybe that's why, maybe not. Maybe he, they were there, maybe they weren't. Either way, the Bible says that Jesus sent them forth two by two, six teams of two, into the region roundabout. And the Bible says that he gave them power over unclean spirits. Now, the Matthew and the Luke passage state that he also gave them power to heal the sick. And as we get a little bit further in, Matthew, uh, in Mark chapter 6, we'll see that they also did heal the sick. But there is a uniqueness to the expression of them healing the sick here in Mark that we don't see in Matthew and Luke, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Uh, furthermore, Jesus commanded them that they not take anything for their journey. And he specifically says, no script, no bread, no money in their purse. Now, a script, the word script there is an old English word uh, for a small bag, uh, a pouch of sorts. And uh, those would hold food, it would hold money, it would hold provisions for the way. No script, so you don't even take the, the, the bread or the money in your purse, but you don't even take the, the purse, right? Don't even take the script, don't even take the bag. Uh, and then, of course, wearing only uh, sandals and then not taking two coats, only one coat. So uh, the idea here, only a staff. Uh, the implication was that they were not to necessarily have any sort of a preparational provision for the way. They were not to go with, uh, with, with a, a, a horde of resources around them. And we know, uh, for those of us that know the Gospels, that there would be uh, another commission where Jesus would say, take those things, go with the provision. Uh, the leading of the Lord might send us out with, without provision uh, and, and uh, send us uh, just to be provided for along the way, or the Lord might send us with provision. And if you are familiar with missionary biographies, you've seen that happen both ways, right? You've seen the people who have just said, I'm going on the field. And then you've read other people who have uh, done the, the due diligence beforehand uh, to create a, a supply line along the way. And the Lord can and has blessed both throughout the centuries. In this case, however, he says, don't, don't provide for yourself along the way. Go places and ask them or expect them or allow them, those who would receive you, to be the ones to provide for you. So Jesus says in verse 10, in what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. So the design of Christ in this particular endeavor was that they were called as ministers of the kingdom to be provided for by those unto whom they were sent. That they would go and they would announce the message that they were, that, that, that they were um, espousing, 
the message of the kingdom of God, and as they would do so, that they would allow those who heard the message and received the message with gladness to be the ones who would then care for them for the extent of time that they were around those people. They would enter into a house, one willing to host them, and they would remain there until they were ready to depart, uh, the implication being that that house then would be their host, that they would take care of them along the way. Jesus then continues, verse 11. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Jesus then gives them instruction for the, the eventuality that they would come to a place where no one would receive them. In this instance, Jesus says, if they will not receive you, if they will not hear you, then leave. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is an idiomatic expression to shake the dust off of your feet. Obviously, at this time in history, there were not conventionally paved roads. Within the portion of the Roman Empire, uh, they had laid stone to establish highways throughout the kingdom. By about 100 AD, this road system would span some 250,000 miles of rocks being laid. And as a matter of fact, many of those paved roads are still uh, paved today. Uh, it is amazing how well uh, constructed and put together those roads were, obviously not nearly as smooth as concrete or asphalt is today. Uh, however, still very well paved, uh, rocks being put together in a manner that created a, a good uh, system of, um, of uh, transportation meant specifically for armies and for commerce. The uh, ability for them to move goods and services as well as to move armies throughout their empire was an important part of what made Rome so capable and powerful as opposed to the other um, uh, nations and other empires throughout the world. Uh, to this end, naturally, there would be paved roads. However, when Jesus is anticipating them going two by two to all of the towns, the, these, these paved roads did not go to every town, right? The paved roads were major thoroughfares that were meant for armies and for commerce. They were not extending to towns and villages throughout the empire. And to this end then, uh, the roads that men would be walking on would most certainly have been dirt roads. And they would walk, and as they would do so, it would be a natural thing, even as we talked about on a Tuesday night a few weeks ago, it would be a natural thing that they would collect dust upon their feet. We understand that they wore sandals, but of course, type of footwear aside, anyone who walks on dirt, even if you uh, go uh, running a trail today or walking a trail today, when you get back, you are going to have collected dirt on your shoes, on your feet, on your sandals, on whatever it is that you chose to wear along that journey. Now, the idea of them shaking the dust off of their feet was that as they left that city or that town, as they left that place where that the people had not received them, where there was not one person within the scope of that area who was willing to host them and listen to their message and, and regard that message, but rather rejected their message, the disciples were being compelled here by shaking the dust off of their feet not to worry about that not to carry the frustration or the sorrow or the shame or, or even judgment of that rejection with them and so decisively not to carry those things with them as they left. 
that they refused to even carry the dirt of the region with them, that as they left that city, they effectively said, your guilt is not on me. I am leaving your guilt with you because you would not receive the message that I have for you. And I'm not even carrying the dirt of your city with me as I go. I'm not going to uh, be frustrated or, or, or deeply sorrowful or, or, or guilty because I did my part. It's you who did not do yours. And this will be the theme of our application this evening, so we'll come back to it in a few minutes. Jesus then does assure the disciples that, concerning those who had rejected them in their message, had rejected the message of the kingdom, that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Uh, now, we have not long ago studied Genesis 19 and the account of Sodom and Gomorrah on Sunday morning. We read of the fire and the brimstone that consumed the cities and consumed the plains, God destroying the people and even the land around it, right? He destroyed the people, he destroyed the cities, he destroyed the plains, and he effectively salted the fields around Sodom and Gomorrah so that the plains, which the Bible describes as having been so fertile that it was as the, the Garden of Eden or as uh, the, the, the fertility of Egypt, that would probably be the Nile River Delta, right? That area where uh, it's just so lush and so green, it was as fertile as those regions, and then after this, it was absolutely barren. After Sodom and Gomorrah, after the judgment upon the cities of the plains. That's the kind of judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah incurred in the physical on that day. And we can only imagine then what judgment day will look like for those people. They have not had their judgment day yet. No man has had his judgment day yet as we understand the scriptures, but those who so strongly rejected the truths of God's design, if their physical judgment was such destruction, imagine what their spiritual judgment must be. And yet, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for those who would reject the disciples in their message. That on the day when men stand before Christ in judgment, the guilt of those who reject the disciples will be greater than the guilt of those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we think about the nature of judgment, that's a very interesting thought, isn't it? After all, the lake of fire is the lake of fire, right? How is it that it could be more tolerable for some than it can be for others? And this is a question that has pursued theologians for, for centuries, even leading to some very interesting and creative attempts to solve the problems among various uh, um, uh, people, groups, churches, denominations, and the like. And because of this, I'm not going to address the whole of this question this week. Rather, next time we're together, we're going to uh, focus on this idea of judgment and think through the judgment of the believer, the judgment of the unbeliever, kind of set all of that out, what the Bible has to say about it, and we'll think through judgment together. And then the next message will also stay within this passage because I also want to think through the message that the disciples had, this message of repentance. And we'll, uh, we'll spend a little bit of time thinking about what the Bible has to say about repentance. But let's take Jesus at his word here, that whatever it meant, whatever it might mean, practically speaking, the response of any man who would reject the disciples would qualify them for a worse day on the day of judgment, a less tolerable day of judgment 
than those of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll think through that next time. So we finish our passage today, verses 12 and 13. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So the disciples obeyed. The Bible says they went out and they preached. And the message they preached is that men should repent. They cast out devils, and the Bible says they healed them that were sick. So we do see the healing here. We don't see the, 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 the pre-statement uh, that, that Christ gave them authority over the devils and uh, an authority to heal the sick, as we see in Matthew and in Luke. But we do see here that they cast out devils and that they did, in fact, heal the sick, anointing them with oil. And the disciples preached the same message that our Savior did, and that with the same emphasis. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But notice here, it doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says, repent. And remember how we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Remember how we talked about the idea that um, the, the Pharisees liked to key in on the idea of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus was keying in on the fact that they could not focus on the kingdom of heaven, until they first came to the place of repentance. We did that on a Sunday morning, not on a Sunday evening. But we see that same kind of emphasis here. We see that same uh, uh, thought process here, that men should repent. And it's because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the repentance is the focus. Again, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. So the disciples preached this message and validated its authority by doing the signs and the wonders which Christ had empowered them to do casting out of devils, healing the sick, those being signs and wonders as a means by which to validate the authority by which they preach this message of repentance. And as I mentioned already, notice that the Bible says as it relates to the healing of the sick that they anointed men with oil and healed them. Now we do not hear of that in the other gospels, that these disciples had anointed men with oil to heal them, as opposed to simply doing what Jesus did, which was speaking or touching the, them or, or, or whatever it might be to be healed. And as we recognize this, we understand this is not to be a contradiction, only a difference. Mark distinguishes the authority that was given to the disciples to cast out demons in Jesus's name with the authority given unto them to heal, which seems to have run through the cultural practice of anointing with oil. And this cultural practice of anointing with oil was used in various means throughout the times of the Bible. It was used to perfume the body uh, with its absence being obvious in times of fasting or in mourning. In times of fasting or mourning, one of the things that they were not to do would be to anoint their body. We see this in David's day when he's fasting for the son of Bathsheba, that he did not anoint his body. And then once the son had died, then he went and he washed himself and he anointed his body and, and then he ate. And so we, we uh, see that idea of anointing one's body as a means by which to, uh, to perfume the body uh, from the, the, the typical uh, smells that would be associated with the human body and such. Um, it was used in various religious ceremonies as well, both Jewish and pagan to anoint the sacred instruments of worship and also to anoint the men who were set apart to conduct worship. And we can see this once again in the Old Testament as there would be an anointing upon the various priests at various times uh, as a part of the worship of God. And then, of course, we know that it was used at death as one of the means by which to perfume the body of the dead 
as Jesus was anointed by Mary in the days just prior to his death, Jesus saying that she has anointed me in preparation for said death. However, outside of this instance in Mark, and then its subsequent New Testament application, we see very little by way of the idea of anointing unto healing. We see that oils have always been used in the process of healing the body. We've seen various oils used as a means by which to, to foster healing in the body, but this is a little bit different. We see this instance in Mark whereby the scriptures tell us that they anointed the sick with oil and many of them were healed. And then we see this only one other time in this context in the New Testament, and that is in James chapter 5. And in James chapter 5, we see James command the church to practice this as well. So we read in verses 14 through 18, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. So James calls for those who are sick among the men of the church uh, to come before the men of the church and present themselves before the elders of that church. And those elders were to pray over him, to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, in the name of Christ. And the Bible says the prayer of faith would save the sick and the Lord would raise him up. Now, all of the language here, and we did a study on this on Tuesday evenings uh, last year, and so many of you are familiar with this, but all of the language here points to this speaking about literal illnesses, not spiritual illnesses, and the expectation of literal healing, not spiritual healing. However, there are a couple of expectations that follow this teaching of healing. Uh, we see the idea of anointing with oil, but that is obviously not the focal point of this passage. First, we see that this prayer, that the prayer that the elders would make for the one who is sick, anointing him with oil, is to be a prayer of faith. Now, at Legacy Baptist Church, we regularly define faith as the moment when the thing that I know becomes the thing that I believe, and it is evidenced by the fact that it affects the things that I do. And we gather this not just from Hebrews 11 and the definitional idea of of faith from Hebrews 11, but then combined with the exhortation in James chapter 2 as it relates to the idea that faith without works is dead, being alone. And we've talked several times about what that means, what it means that faith without works is dead. And it certainly does not mean that salvation is by works. Uh, the passage is not even necessarily contextually talking about salvation itself. It's talking about the idea of faith, which is not simply something that has to do with salvation, but it has to do with every aspect of the Christian life. And the fact of the matter is, what James is saying is not that a man is justified by works. A man is justified by faith. However, he then goes on to say that our faith is in fact justified by our works. In other words, the thing that proves that I'm actually exercising believing faith is the fact that that faith gives way to something in my life that is produced. Faith produces something. If nothing is produced, then it's dead. It's not faith. Faith produces a natural work. The natural work that is produced when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior 
is repentance from dead works and faith toward God, right? Is the idea that I'm setting aside anything and everything that I might be trusting in to get myself to heaven and I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And if I do that, that is the natural work, uh, which is literally the casting off of my dead works. That is the thing that is produced when I exercise faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the same way, if I have faith in what Jesus Christ said about provision, then I will produce the natural work of taking no thought for what I shall eat or what I shall drink or, what, uh, or wherewith I shall be clothed. But I will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be added unto me. That is the natural production in my life, the natural work that flows out of my faith. So that if I say I have faith that Jesus Christ will provide for me, but then I, I, I spend all of my time in anxious laboring over uh, over my circumstances in order to eat and drink and be clothed, my actions are actually reflecting the fact that I am not living in said faith. So works are not the means by which I am right with God, but my works are a natural reflection of faith. Faith produces works. A part of this faith uh, as we see it in James 5, was that they would obey and so anoint the sick with oil. But the prayer faith is not just a faith of obedience, it is also a faith of unities. James says, if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. This perhaps acknowledges that some illness is due to the chastening hand of God for sin, but the language here does not by any means imply or even allow for the idea that the illness mentioned here are those that are brought on by sin. Notice it does not say here, since he has committed sin or because he has committed sin, but if he has committed sin. And of course, we went to the Greek when we were doing this study on Tuesday nights, and it is actually a third-class condition for those Greek folks. It is not a first-class condition. It was a third-class condition. It is actually an if. It is not a since, not a because. To this end, we recognize this as the second part of the idea of praying in faith, that the first and natural step to a faith-filled prayer is that the church have lives which are free from unconfessed sin, lives that are right before God and before men, that are right in God's eyes, that are right uh, one with another, brethren that are right one with another, a body which is not in disunity, but rather united in corporate faithful prayer for the sick. And this prayer, as they obey the Lord and anointing him with oil, and as they come with this faith-filled determination that they would be unified together and unified with their Lord and petition their Lord for this thing is a powerful prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A man who prays in faith, Sins confessed, obedience and hope. This man's prayer is effectual and powerful. Just as Elijah in his day, who, though a man like you and like me, prayed that it might not rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. And then at the end of that time, he prayed again, and it rained again. This is the power of a faith-filled prayer. And it is demonstrated and taught in James 5, but it is first exemplified in Mark 6, where this is how it was that the disciples, the Bible says, healed those with whom they interacted. They anointed them with oil and they healed them. They preached then repentance unto the kingdom of God. 
Now, as we close today, I'd like us to go back to Jesus's commission of the 12. It was not too long ago that we spoke of the nature of evangelism through the example of the former demoniac of Gadara. He did not stay the demoniac of Gadara. He became the former demoniac of Gadara. And then he went throughout all of Decapolis preaching the reality of what Jesus Christ had done for him. And there in Mark 5, Jesus commanded that man who had been delivered, uh, though that man wanted to follow Jesus back into Galilee, instead that he would go home and that he would tell his friends, tell them how great things the Lord had done for him. And the man traveled throughout all of Decapolis proclaiming that message. And there we spoke about the importance of us as messengers sent to represent Christ within our sphere of influence in the world. And some are gifted uniquely to an effective ministry of gospel deliverance according to the measure of the spirit that has been given to them to serve the body of Christ in that way. And as you and I go out into the world and as we each do our part, as we uh, respond and submit to the burdens that the Spirit of God has given to us, that as He tells us to go, as He tells us to speak, as He tells us to represent, that we do so with faithfulness. As He compels us to spend our time in evangelism, we spend it. As, as He compels us to speak to our friends and our loved ones, we speak to them. As He compels us to set an example, we do so. As we are obedient to the giftings and the calling that God has given to us, as we go into the world, we live in consistency with the gospel, specifically so that others might ask us of the hope that lies within us and we might be able to tell them. And again, at other times, we are burdened for a specific people or a specific place or a specific time. And we share the message of the gospel with them with passion because the Lord has given us that passion, that burden for that people. And there are times when the Spirit of God works in a powerful way and when men and women receive with gladness the word of the gospel. And we've seen that at various times in history. We can read of those times. You can read about it in the Bible, even before Jesus Christ, uh, in times like Jonah, right? Uh, you can read about it in, in the, the New Testament, uh, such as the day of Pentecost. And there are times when men receive with great... With, with, with great uh, um, uh, willingness, the gospel, as it goes forth with power. But then we also see times, do we not, when that's not the case. That though a man has done his part and has even spoken with power and with authority, the listeners have not done theirs, such as when Paul spoke at Mars Hill. And people were not interested in what he had to say. There are times when a man tells, but the listeners do not receive. And again, we'll talk a bit more about the nature of judgment next week, and we'll touch upon the idea of rejection a little more at that time. But perhaps as you walked away from whatever that interaction was, where someone asked you of the hope that was within you and you shared with them that hope, or where you, enlivened by a divine burden, proclaimed the love of the Lord, realized in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and announced mercy and judgment to men and women, or where you, again, through the spiritual burden and compulsion of the Lord, distributed the good news of Jesus Christ through the written word, a gospel tract, a Bible, or through a video online as we read about this evening with Missionary Bergman. But you were rejected. And here's the thing. When we walk away having felt a burden and a desire to share the gospel, and we have done so, 
and we share it and we say, the Lord has given me this burden and you deliver it and you feel as though it was even delivered with power. You have recognized the Holy Spirit's freedom for you to be able to speak as you ought to speak and do as you ought to do. And then they say no and you walk away. And in that rejection, perhaps you felt as though you had failed. You walked away saying, what went wrong? What happened there? I thought this was the Lord's burden. I thought this was the Lord's desire. I thought that was the Lord's power. And it's that feeling, that sentiment that I desire to address in our closing moments. When Jesus sent these men, he endowed them with his power and his authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. As a testimony to the cities of Israel of the truth of the message in consistency with what was promised in the Old Testament prophets as it related to signs and wonders accompanying the Messiah. And they preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were sent with, with Christ's power and they were sent with Christ's authority, given them by Christ himself who stood before them. But just as Christ was rejected in Nazareth, so too our Savior anticipated times when their message, even compelled by the very power of God and the signs and wonders of God to heal the sick and to cast out demons, would fall upon unbelieving and hardened hearts, would fall upon deaf ears. And upon consideration of this scenario, Jesus did not tell them that they would in that day know as they walked away from that city and no man received them. He did not tell them, and if you walk away, having no man to receive you, just know that you did something terribly wrong. He did not say, just know that you really messed up. He did not say, just know that you, 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 you completely miss, missed your opportunity. Jesus did not tell them that they would leave that city in great mourning or great guilt, or great shame, their tail tucked between their legs, convinced of their failure to convince others. Jesus told them on that day to not take those burdens with them at all. To not even take the dirt of the city with them as they walked away. Because they are not the power. They are only the messenger. Their duty was not to make people believe. Their duty was not to be uniquely compelling. Their duty was to tell, to be the messenger that Christ sent them to be. And if they had just sat under a bridge somewhere, hiding in a corner, finding a cave, lo lo looking for a place where they did not do what they'd been commissioned to do, then they would be guilty of not sharing the message. If they did not go from city to city as he commanded them to go from city to city, from village to village, if they did not seek to preach the kingdom of heaven, if they did not seek to articulate that message, if they went and they hid, then they'd be guilty of something because that is not what Christ told them to do. But having done what they were told to do, they were to walk away even if they were rejected knowing that they had done what they were told to do. Because no messenger Christian can compel a heart to submit to Christ. Only the Spirit of Christ can compel that.
and even the Spirit of Christ will not drive a heart to believe against its will, but will commend itself to the heart of man if that man might see and might submit through belief. To this end, Christian, it is not for you and I to live troubled by the coldness of unbelievers to the message of Christ. If you are sorrowful, over the great burden that you have for the lost so that your tears flow with a longing for their souls, that's not a bad thing by any means, is it? You're in good company there if you weep for the souls of men. After all, did not our Savior do the same? Did he not look upon Jerusalem just prior to his crucifixion and say in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. So that in that day that you walk away grieved, mourning for the souls of men, you're in good company. As we walk away burdened for the souls of those who have rejected our message when we enter to tell them and we weep and we pray and we fast and we mourn, we are in good company. But let us not walk away from our testimony of Christ, from the message of Christ, thinking that their rejection is our failure. For we are just the messenger. We are not the power. We are partnered with the Holy Spirit in the endeavor to call men out of darkness but it is the spirit of the living Christ who calls all men unto him. And it must be the heart of the hearer that relents to said call and places their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that this freedom that we have from results-driven evangelism doesn't quench our desire, does not quench our burden, but rather enlivens that burden. When you are freed from result-driven evangelism to messenger-driven evangelism, knowing that we do not have to walk around with the weight of failure, knowing that we do not have to walk around with the shame of rejection, for as our Savior said in his final discourse, as he and his followers walked away from the city toward Gethsemane on the night in which he was betrayed, And he said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. A rejection of the gospel from your lips, Christian, is not a rejection of you. It is a rejection of the gospel. It's a rejection of the one whom you represent. They, to whatever degree they might hate you, as long as you have not given your, them a reason to hate you in the flesh, right? You've not been odious and, uh, uh, and uh, um, pushy and, and, and rude and, and uh, unkind and those sorts of things. If you have delivered the gospel with clarity and with love, the truth and love as we are called to do, then what they hate is Christ in you. What they hate is that you aren't of this world. But here's the thing. It's a good thing that you're not of this world. It's not a bad thing that you're not of this world. It's a good thing. They reject you because you're not of this world, but you're supposed to be not of this world. And if a man hate me for the good that is in me, not of myself, not the good that is in me of me, but the good that is in me of Christ. If a man hate me for that good that is in me, 
I will not be ashamed. I need not be ashamed. I will not regard that hatred as anything, for it is nothing. I will shake the dust off of my feet. For what is in me of my Savior is the only thing in me of worth and merit. And I will not be ashamed of that. So I will proclaim this good. And I will tell all how they too might have this good that is in me, not of me, but of Christ. So I will not feel ashamed when they have rejected that good themselves. It is freely given to all if they are willing. Christian, you are the messenger. You are not the power. You do not need to carry the dust of those who have rejected Christ's name upon your feet. It is ours only to be faithful, to faithfully show, to faithfully tell, to be obedient to our Savior as he has called us to go. And as they hear the good news from our lips, and as they see the good news in the manner of our conversation, our testimony before them, may they be convicted by the Spirit of God and may they believe the gospel. But if they do not, I've still been faithful. I've still told the good news. I've still delivered the message. And that's what I am. I'm not the power. I'm the messenger. And I can walk away that I, uh, knowing that I am right with my Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.